<sighs> Mail call. Let's see. What the heck is this? An order for a PB&J podcast. Well, you're the, the, the P in that, and I'd be the J. Where the heck is the B? Our special guest! <laughs> Naturally. Who, me? <laughs> yes, you! There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The penny and James to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello once again in podcast land. I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome once again to the Pemmy and James Kinda Sorta Hopefully Funny Cartoon Podcast. And we have another totally new to this show guest on the couch today. Ladies and gentlemen, Billy DeTori. Hey, how are you guys? Thank you for having me on. We are glad to have you on because I couldn't think of anybody better to discuss our subject today. This is going to be the first of a great many looks at the cart animated productions of Warner Brothers. The Warner Brothers Animation Unit was founded in 1933 as Leon Schlesinger Productions, which he would oversee from its founding until his retirement in the 1940s. Warner bought the studio in 1944 and would run it until 1964. And over this time frame, the studio produced hundreds of short subjects, many of them starring well-known and beloved characters like Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Tweety and Sylvester, Foghorn Leghorn, The Roadrunner, Wile E. Coyote, and on and on. This episode is not about any of these characters. It's not even about the likes of the Goofy Gophers, or Gossamer, or Beaky Buzzard, who would appear in just a handful of shorts. We are talking about characters who only appeared once in the original theatrical run of Warner Brothers' animated Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies from 1933 to 1964. We're talking about some one-offs. That's right. And we are going to get started with a pair of cartoons in 1942, which would actually be a pivotal year in Warner Animation because that was the year Tex Avery left the studio. Tex was and is widely considered as animation's original gag man, coming up with zany ideas that defined comedy for Warner and later for MGM, where he would create Droopy Dog, Screwy Squirrel, and the Red Hot Riding Hood crew, amongst others. I, I think, well, yeah, he arguably created Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, but his interpretations were vastly different than what we think of now. So does it still count as his creation? It- more or less. I mean, he did coin... It was either him... Was it him that uh, directed a wild hair? Yeah, I think so. And and that's the one where the fra- where Bugs was first associated with the phrase, What's up, Doc? So Yeah, because Tex Avery came up with that line. I think Bugs took his first recognizable shape under Tex. Okay. The reason I said that was I was almost said that like Tex Avery's best character was Droopy, but then I was just like, wait a second. No, I can't say that. <laughs> Because the thing is, I associate Droopy more with Tex Avery than I do Bugs and Daffy, despite the fact that, you know, he did, in fact, create them. Right, because, you know, as Bugs Bunny said, while most rabbits have a great many children, he had several fathers. And while Tex may have been one of the first, there were a great many others, including Mr. Bob Clampett, who 
took over Tex Avery's uh, production unit, basically getting promoted because, you know, Clampett had been producing cartoons with his own group. But with Tex leaving, Clampett was given arguably some of the best animators at the studio, and he took good advantage of it. It's a Bob Clampett cartoon. Wait. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're still almost a decade off from Benny and Cecil. It's always the... Is it Benny or Beanie? I think it's Beanie and Cecil. My apologies. Because he wears a beanie on his head. Your apologies to both Benny and Beanie. <laughs> Not to Cecil. He was always a pain. Dishonest John was the best character, let's be honest. <laughs> but I've never seen a single one of those cartoons. They're they're interesting, I'll put it that way. <laughs> I had a couple of toys when I was a little little kid. Do you remember um and I, I have a feeling I'm older than both of you guys probably put together. Uh there were soaky toys for like the bathtub. You know, uh, plastic toys that had like bubble bath, but they were shaped like cartoon characters. And I had a Cecil Soaky toy for when I when I was a little kid to play in the bathtub with. Yeah, that 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 predates me. I'm 41 for the record. I'm 42. I'm 55, 56. Really? So hmm. I'm old, but I still watch cartoons. In fact. Yesterday morning, uh, well, we're taping this on a Sunday. Saturday morning, I still get up and watch Looney Tunes cartoons on MeTV. Mm, man after my heart. With uh, Looney Tunes, there was uh, some Pink Panther, some Popeye. They've done Good a stuff. nice job uh, resurrecting the old cartoons on MeTV on Saturday mornings. And actually weekdays, too. Nice. Have not checked me TV out. I'm not even sure I get it on my cable plan. Uh, if you, um, you, I think you might. Well, I'll, I'll send you a message because a lot of people don't know they have some things they have. Okay. Even on the most basic plans, I think you get me TV. Anyhow, so while Clampett would continue a, a number of cartoons that were started under Tex Avery. The first cartoon he did with this animation unit, from start to finish, is our first subject, Horton Hatches the Egg. Yes, as in the Dr. Seuss book. Wow. So, Seuss, actually, a, a, Oh, go ahead, Billy. No, I'm, I'm sorry, James. I just went... When you messaged me about that cartoon, my first instinct, or my first thought, was the animated special that, you know, the full half hour... One that Dr. Seuss did, Horton Hears a Who. Yeah, was, so, that was done with Chuck Jones, so I don't blame yep. you for going in that direction. So this was technically a sequel to that, wasn't it? Or a prequel. I'm not sure which one yeah. came first. I mean, in terms of production as animation, mm -hmm. yeah. Horton Hatches the Egg came first. Oh, good point. Yeah. But I don't know about publishing books. Dr. Seuss, a.k.a. Ted Geisel, was working with Warner and Clampett himself at that very time on the private snafu films made for the U.S. military, which featured his distinctive rhymes matched with caricatures of the Axis powers and um, rather ribald depictions of women. Hell, it was the, what, 1940s? 1940s. 1940s. Man, I was off. 
It was like the 1940s. Yeah, you know. And this was aimed at not a general audience, but a bunch of adult men overseas fighting for their lives. Did they ever release those Private Snafu shorts? Not in theaters, but they have shown up on on DVD compilations as part of specials like uh, like Cartoon Network's Tune Heads and so on. But uh, Private Snafu, of course, Snafu meaning Situation Normal, all beeped up. Yeah, that's right. I'm the only one who swears on the show. <laughs> Sometimes it's funnier to use the beep. That's true. You have no f-ing idea. <laughs> oh, now you'll have to push a button to let people know this is for a mature audience. Mm. A mature, immature audience. <laughs> mature, immature. That that aptly describes the whole FC3 crowd. Mm-hmm. But anyhow... The Horton cartoon, to uh, not just my research, but the general research of Wikipedia at large, would be the first adaptation of any of Seuss's books to film or any other medium besides, you know, books. It even predates stop-motion takes on The 500 Hats of Bartholomew Cubbins and And To Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street that came from Paramount Pictures over the following two years. I don't think I've ever seen either either of those two in their entirety. Mm -hmm. I've seen bits and pieces of the Mulberry Street one as part of the Turner Network special In Search of Dr. Seuss. But I think the the Cubbins one might be lost to time. I'm not familiar with them at all. I I don't know and didn't even know of that one. Mark this day down. It's rare that I stump Femi. (laughs) It happens occasionally. I, I will say though that uh, since this was like in in like the earlier 1940s era of Warner Brothers, they actually don't show any, they don't credit anybody in the opening. But as soon as I was watching it and it was animated, it's like, oh yeah, this is a Bob Clampett cartoon. I can just tell. Yeah, it, <laughs> it looks very much like Wacky Land. Though uh, it, I do like that some of the animals, not all of the animals, but some of the animals, he does put some Seuss-ish look to them to an extent. There was that one mouse that appears that just, it, it's totally not a Seuss-looking mouse. Yeah, it, it it more resembles Chuck Jones's Sniffles character than anything else. But Elephant's faithful, 100%. <laughs> yeah. As far as adaptations of, of books go, this is reasonably faithful. They mostly sprinkle in some some Warner Brothers style gags for flavor, including Maisie Bird doing an impression of Catherine Hepburn. Yep. Yeah. It's I, I was thinking about Warner Brothers tendency or I mean, they parody movie stars of the time in a lot of their cartoons. And I was watching one yesterday where they parodied Peter Lorre. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this Peter Laurie is one of their favorites to do. Mm-hmm. And I've, nowadays, are there is there an equivalent of like a modern day cartoon where they'll parody? God, I don't even know who George Clooney. Uh, or, I mean, I, other I than the Simpsons, and See. you know, Simpsons and Family Guy, yes. But I mean, like uh, a kids' cartoon where they'll on Disney or whatever. The closest I can think of would be Animaniacs. Yeah, uh, especially, the, well, even the reboot does it. 
Um, who, who do they parody? Because I'm back in the old days, Warner Brothers would parody everyone from Bing Crosby to Humphrey Bogart to Peter Lorre to Catherine Hepburn see. to Liberace. We'll get to Liberace later. That era of uh, of Warner team uh, for that did Animaniacs, they loved to parody Jerry Lewis. Oh, jeez, yeah. And uh, they did a lot of uh, Godfather parodies, too. Uh, I remember the actor. Yeah, Maurice LaMarche d- d- would voice those. Oh, and uh, oh, uh, heck, Brain. Brain him- himself is Orson Welles. So. Yeah. yeah. See, but I, did kids back then know who was being parodied? Because Most I have a feeling not. nowadays a lot of ch- times they don't. So, Most likely not. I, I think when I was a kid, I often didn't or rarely knew who they were parodying. When I was Is a kid, it, I'd yeah. be able to pick out Clark Gable and the Marx Brothers and the Three Stooges. But I had to have like Greta Garbo and Peter Lorre and such explained to me. And God help me when they referred to radio stuff like Fibber McGee. I think I yeah, I was or... always a comedy nerd, so I used to like borrow old time radio shows and comedy albums from the library. And I have just like this weird trip. Well, you guys do too. But even back as a little kid, if I didn't know who it was, I'd ask my parents or I'd, I'd actually try and research it to find out who they were making fun of. Uh, well, it's not quite the same, but. Uh... Uh, 80s era Transformers, a lot of the voices for the Transformers were parodies of actors because they they had limited voice actors that were just throwing whatever they could. Cosmos was a parody of Peter... Voice was a parody of Peter Lorre. Uh, Peter Lorre, again. Right. Uh, Trax was based on uh, the guy who played the millionaire, uh, Bacchus. Uh, oh, Jim Bacchus. Okay. Jim Bacchus, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and Red Alert was supposedly a parody of Richard Nixon. <laughs> That's interesting. Oh, yeah, and, and Futurama would do that, too. Uh, Billy West's uh, Philip Fry voice was taken from some of his Larry impressions. Well, yeah, Billy West does a great Larry Fine impression. It's, it's funny, because Billy West's normal voice just sounds like a slightly older version of Fry. <laughs> I think he definitely did the... He, he Larry did... He, he Larry find it a lot more when he literally played a mouse named Larry in a single episode of Peaky and the Brain. <laughs> Peaky and the Brain and Larry and Larry and Larry. So I don't think we need to recap too much of Horton since by now it's a familiar children's story and I imagine most of us either who were kids or have had kids have read this to their kids or read this on their own. Of course, Maisie Bird decides she's had enough sitting on an egg and manages to trick the kind-hearted Horton the Elephant into doing it. And, of course, as Pemmy said, Horton said what he meant and meant what he said. Oh, I've got it backwards. <laughs> Strike that. Reverse it. I meant what I said and said what I meant. An elephant faithful 100%. 100%. Though uh, one of the definitely Warner-esque gags that was not in the Seuss story was Maisie morphing her body to tr- or attempting to morph her body to seduce Horton. <laughs> like puffed her up to the chest and then everything just fell back down. <laughs> yeah. Plus nowadays, fun. now nowadays Maisie would uh, 
get a call from Child Protective Services. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. You wouldn't be allowed to leave the kid with Horton for a year. Yeah, 51 weeks he sits on this egg, through rain, through snow, through the laughter of his peers, through threats from hunters, through living through a noisy hot circus tent. Speaking Mm -hmm. of the hunters for a second, it says they aimed their gun straight at his heart. That was not his heart. That was nowhere close to his heart. (laughs) No, unless Horton's heart is that big. When you think of it, that's a really sad cartoon when you see you know, Horton captured, and he's left, you know, to care for the egg. He, he's abused, basically, through eight minutes of that cartoon for yep. for a happy ending. But Yeah, funny you mentioned that runtime, Billy, because mm-hmm. this is one of the longest of the Looney Tunes short subjects. Mm-hmm. Clocking in at just over nine minutes. It, it's, it's sort of a dark, sad cartoon. And he's seasick a hundred percent. I like the the cute alteration of that. But uh yeah, I mean no you can't. Yes we can. No you yes they can. Another classic Warner gag they tossed in just to just to keep the in-house flavor going. If you didn't need any more proof that this was a Bob Clampett or Dale, those hunters give it completely away. <laughs> and actually, and speaking of Peter Laurie, while I was doing a little research, the version that I saw has a joke edited out from the original theatrical run. The fish that pops up on the uh, when Horton's making the trip back with the hunter, there's a fish that pops up. And says something like, I've, now I've seen everything. I forget what his line is. Yeah, that, that's the, pretty much it. In, in the cartoon, he pulls out a gun and kills himself. Yep. Yeah, Warner did that a lot. <laughs> Suicide's funny. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, they they had some some darkness to those cartoons or jokes aimed at not necessarily kids. Well, let's not forget that these cartoons were often intended to go in front of things like gangster movies, like The Public Enemy and Little Caesar. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I miss the days when, and it still happens occasionally, but usually with an animated movie, where there used to be cartoons and newsreels and a Three Stooges short and all kinds of things attached to the main feature. A newsreel. And weirdly, for whatever reason, because my brain just rambles to things, mentioning the suicide joke just remembered my just caused me to randomly remember one of my favorite jokes from the Flintstones, and it wasn't even a publicly shown like episode. Oh, this um, is a good one. It was it was from like they the Flintstones uh, had this uh, episode they made that was shown only at a trade show for Bush beer. So they they hired Hanna Barbera to make a thirty almost thirty minute Flintstone episode just to be shown at trade shows, and but in it there's a scene where like Fred and Barney's like lost their job or Fred caused him and Barney to quit and uh, they're trying to think of him. Fred's like, so what are we going to tell our wives? And Barney's like, oh, I got mine figured all out already. Fred, it's like, really? What are you going to do? I'm going to march march right in there and I'll be like, Betty, 
Fred Flintstone made me quit my job today. And Fred's like, and then what? And Barney's like, and then I kill myself. What else? <laughs> and, and there's like this pause, and then Fred starts laughing, and then Barney starts laughing. I'm just like, that's fucking dark. <laughs> it is. I like it. <laughs> me too. <laughs> that's why it's one of my favorites because it, it caught me so off guard. I just I've, I've never heard of that though. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, I actually have uh, on my YouTube channel. I do a like whole review of that that beer trade show only Flintstone episode because it was so. I was just so intrigued by it. It was so weird. I couldn't find very much information on it either. It was a very strange find on YouTube. Of course, you can find that review on Artificial Orange Studios. Yep, just look up our official Orange Studios on YouTube. Cheap plug. <laughs> Anyways, back to uh, Horton, though. Um, yeah, real quick, we're going to at least go over the voices. Uh, Horton himself is voiced by Kent Rogers. Narration is provided by Frank Graham. And Maisie's voice, both regular and Catherine Hepburn impression, is voice actress Sarah Berner. Rally it is. <laughs> well... Well, most of the other voices are provided by who else but Mel Blanc. Surprisingly, Mel Blanc was not the Peter Laurie fish, though. That was the same guy voicing Horton. Yeah, that was Rogers. Yep. Which is surprising because oftentimes Mel Blanc really will do. Uh, he Actually, I think I know Peter Laurie more from Mel Blanc's imitations of Peter Laurie than Peter Laurie himself. <laughs> yeah, and, but as the story goes, you know, he's... He's taken to the circus, and right when it starts to hatch, Maisie just happens to come in here and try to claim it back. But, oh no! We got an Which elephant bird. Why would she want the kid back? She didn't want to take care of it when it wasn't. When it, it, just, when it wouldn't be like doing kid-like things. She didn't, she didn't want, want the easiest play. part of... <laughs> well, she was just tired of sitting on it and didn't want to do it anymore. She wanted and, to go on vacation. That night, I don't think she was thinking that far through. She just, like she says, it's like the work is now done. <laughs> so, oh, she don't know the half of it. <laughs> Must be your first kid. <laughs> and where's the father? Where's the absentee father? You know that does beg questions, especially considering what hatches. You know, that does answer a lot of. I mean, she. She did straight up flirt with Horton. Still, Horton and the elephant bird will return to home to the to the savannah, happily singing what they can remember of the Hutsut song. Let's see, and so on, so on, so on. Yeah, he. Could, yeah, neither of them can ever remember the rest of that. <laughs> and they were happy one hundred percent. As far as I can tell, this would be the only time. Horton hatching the egg would be adapted. But Horton's other story, where he goes to see Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend, would become an animated special under Chuck Jones, as uh, Billy alluded to earlier, and also a feature film from Universal. Was that uh, done by DreamWorks? Potentially. I, I know Illumination wasn't even formed at that point. I, th I think it was a DreamWorks production, but don't... Uh, now i got to look it up. <laughs> Oh, no, it's by Blue Sky Studio. Hi. Oh, okay. Boy, they just broke up, too. Thanks, Disney. Uh. It, to my defense, though, I'm looking at the uh, the poster for Horton Here's a Who, and he's totally doing the, like, DreamWorks, like, half-open eyes and smile. So, um... Oh, I, yeah. 
I think the it's DreamWorks face. Yeah, so I think it's fair that I thought that was a DreamWorks production. <laughs> Carol Burnett was in that? Yeah, she was the kangaroo. Wow, okay. Been a long either it's been a you know, now that I think of it, I'm not even sure if I watched this version. We we may have to put that on the movie review list for when we start doing those. All right. Anyways, sorry. Random train. <laughs> No, that's, that's fine. Like I keep saying, this is an FC3 podcast. We run on tangents. <laughs> so, are we done with Horton and moving to the next one? or Do you have anything left, Billy? Nope, I got nothing. Well, we're going to move on to the next short, but we're going to stay in 1942. Because we're paying a visit to Pimento University. The Dover Boys. Yes. Yes, Chuck Jones's The Dover Boys at Pimento University, or The Rivals of Roquefort Hall. This is a parody of the Rover Boys series of youth novels from earlier in the 20th century. And, wow, has the parody outlasted the original in this case. It sure I've has. I, I don't know if I've ever seen this cartoon before, and if it if I had, this one didn't make sort of a dent in my in my memory box you know i i enjoyed it but i i didn't get all the references and needed my friend mr google and his partner mr wikipedia to <laughs> sort of explain some of the jokes to me this is a uh, good old uh, chuck jones um this is when he was kind of finding his own style so to speak because before he did this a lot of his stuff was very disney-esque yeah, we already mentioned Sniffles the Mouse a second ago. That was Chuck's most significant reoccurring character before this point. Before he created such great characters as Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner, a lot of his best work was when he was like taking his own takes on the established characters, like his take on Bugs and Daffy and whatnot. Oh, absolutely. We are definitely doing an episode on the Hunter trilogy. Oh, definitely. And I've already oh, got. I love those. And I've already got Daffy's uh, stuff under Chuck bookmarked for episode twenty because I want to celebrate twenty episodes with something good. Uh, I guess uh, Billy's willing to be a guest again when we do the Hunter trilogy. I, I, if you'd like me, but if not, I still those three cartoons make me laugh. They're classic comedy. I I love those three. I, I would say most people would say that those and uh, Duck Dodgers are probably uh, Chuck Jones's best work. Sure. No argument from me. Definitely a case can be made. And I'm a, and I'm a big fan of Roadrunner and Coyote, too. Although they can be re- repetitive, but to uh, me, it's, oh, it's good slapstick. I, I, I love the Roadrunner and Coyote. Wiley Coyote is my second to favorite Looney Tunes character, so... First being Daffy because Daffy's freaking great. <laughs> was the uh, was the Hunter trilogy where they I, I can't remember was the Hunter trilogy when they finally like established Daffy's more like cynical like the, like side? egotistical side. Yeah, greedy, egotistical, cynical, side. possibly envious. Yard. Because there's the the equally funny, just sort of goofy. Uh, character where he wasn't as um i guess cynical is the word or abrasive he was just sort of silly so let's get back to good old pu oh yeah i forgot about that 
And in this story, we have Tom, Dick, and Larry Dover, the the three most popular jerks, I mean lads, at Pimento University, taking their beloved fiance Doris Standpipe, of Miss Cheddar's Female Academy for a fun day out. I got questions here. How do these three jerks, I mean people, have a single fiance? Yeah, that is interesting. Are they are they involved in polyandry? Is this a rare instance of 1940s women's lib? The original cuckolds. <laughs> oh! Oof! <laughs> I don't know if that's uh, something I'm allowed to say, but I said it, so. <laughs> hey, I've said worse. Okay. That, that was good. That was really good. <laughs> I, I think the chubby one sits in the corner. <laughs> He just watches. Oh, poor Larry. So, on their way out to their joyous and gay picnic, they pass by a tavern of ill repute where we find the real star of the cartoon, coward, bully, cad, and thief, Dan Backslide. You know, with all of the memes made from the Dover Boys on YouTube, and I rewatched this, there's one line that I was in retrospect, amazed I didn't see get memed to death. Which one would that be? Uh, Dan Backslide saying, I hate dick. Oh. Oh, yes. <laughs> but still, confound those Dover boys. They drive me to drink! And so on. That 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 scene is so good though. That the drinking scene is so good. I love that the just quick bartender also takes a shot. <laughs> Some good fast blur animation there, which oh. seemingly uh, uh, Schlesinger and a lot of people at Warner weren't fond of how much Chuck Jones was abusing this smear effect in that. But it looks so. Good. Yeah, between that and some of the more limited use of animation in this, Jones was uh, was presaging styles of animation that would be more more famous under UPA and other studios well before their time. So I I, I guess Chuck was just uh, ahead of the curve. Head, yeah, just ahead of his time. Because <laughs> which is funny because uh, later down the line, Chuck Jones would make comments about how he hates limited animation. So. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah, Jones is nothing if not opinionated. Well, you know, that that's fair. He he's been it he he was in the field for so until he died pretty much. So I mean if anybody deserves to get be opinionated, I think he has definitely won that award. But uh yeah, um but uh you know, I, I was wondering when I saw this, you think uh you think Dan Backslide is the inspiration for Wildly uh Oh, shoot. Whiplash. Snidely Whiplash. Snidely Whiplash, Dick, and which thereby begat Dick Dastardly, which thereby begat Waluigi, and <laughs> on and on. Waluigi straight up kind of looks like Dick Dastardly. <laughs> As we observed in the last episode, in, in the Wacky Races Wacky episode. Race. I say last episode, but we're recording out of order. Yeah, he's even got the purple. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, secondary colors and villains have gone hand in hand for a long time. 
But then the Dover boys are playing hide-and-go-seek for the count of seemingly 1,500? Yeah. The grown men playing hide-and-go-seek. It makes for a funny visual. Mm-hmm. Not to mention they're darting about all over the place. Oh, no, I forgot. I forgot. We forgot one of the scenes that literally makes me laugh every time I watch this. And it's when they go by the bar and they all have the aghast <laughs> hand in front of them looking away from the bar. <laughs> yeah, they're dabbing before it was a thing. <laughs> Let's see. Hey, bars aren't so bad. but <laughs> Well, that one was. And yet that's where they ended up hiding. Yeah. <laughs> To, and of course, the, right under the pool table where Dan Backslide is uh, playing his billiards, and he realizes that Dora is alone, and he he exits the bar and delivers one of the hammiest things I've ever heard. And A runabout. I'll steal it! No one will ever know! <laughs> <laughs> and that one got memed to death. Oh, no kidding. Especially when JoJo, the anime JoJo's Bizarre Adventure became popular because it plays the song at the end, roundabout. So a lot of people went crazy with that scene. So Uh, after swiping Dora's standpipe, and initially the tree with her that she was counting from, she's sent to a hideaway up in the mountains... But she's in no danger. First of all, she has access to the locks anytime she wants it, but doesn't. Well, of course not. She wants to be saved, despite the fact she literally beats the snot out of Dan Backslide on accident, practically. That's the weirdest muscle memory I've ever seen. Because I'm not even sure she's conscious of doing it. The, the, the kick, where somehow she just bends like half her body backwards and kicks him is hilarious. <laughs> this short is, like, gotta be one of Chuck's, like, most just uh, outright absurd ones. Now, can I ask, did this one make sort of the regular rotation on Saturday mornings or even the syndicated cartoon packages that would show up in, like, weekday afternoons for kids once again. I, I think I remember I don't seeing remember it. seeing this one often, if at all. It's it's funny that, like you said, James, the parody has sort of outlasted what the, the what it's the parody being. Yeah, the source material. But I don't remember seeing this one often. And I, I enjoyed I it. It's funny. I did not see it in syndication in the 80s or or the 90s. I only first saw it on Cartoon Network. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, that's And that would only be after I saw the characters show up on Animaniacs. Yep. See, I've never seen Animaniacs. Is that... It's recommended by you guys, huh? Highly, highly recommended. Very. One of the segments of that show which got spun off into its own show is in my would be in my top seven favorite cartoons ever which is a uh, pinky in the brain i'm sorry what 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 cartoons that pinky and the brain oh okay yeah yeah of course i know pinky and the brain huh so oh, really quickly to... summing up this cartoon a, a young a young boy scout spots doris's quote-unquote danger 
races to get to get a message sent by telegram to the Dover boys at the uh, saloon. They race over while Dan Backside continues to be beat up so bad that he starts crying for help. In charge of Dover boys after a rousing course of their alma mater. And then, well, unhand her, Dan Backslide! Unhand her, Dan Backslide! Unhand her, Dan Backslide! Hey, we're getting in a rut! <laughs> and then just beat the snot out of this already beaten down guy. Yeah. And then they eventually knock each other out after Dan just mm -hmm. can't stand anymore, both figuratively and literally. You know, we forgot to mention the running gag that ends this whole thing. Uh, more like the trotting gag. Because <laughs> all through this short, this old man that just kind of trots along randomly appears all through the episode. And at the end, he's the one who comes and claims Doris and walks off into the sunset with her. And now we say good night. Good night. Now, the, the other two cartoons that we're going to be talking about are the ones I'm most familiar with and are two of my absolute favorites. Indeed, and we will get to those right after this short commercial break. After these messages, we'll be right back. On the next Penny and James show, we're looking at the Don Bluth animated Laserdisc game that wound up getting the somewhat shorter end of the animated adaptation stick. Space Ace didn't make it to a full series like Dragon's Lair did, instead winding up on the Saturday Supercade from Ruby Spears. Dexter and Kimberly battled Commander Borf, yes, his real name, across the cosmos, and in two weeks, we'll examine their exploits which outlived their parents' show. We now return to the Bugs Bunny and Tweety Show. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Welcome back to the show. I have nothing else prepared. I did this on a dare. I'm going to have to call you Weird James. And why did you have to share? <laughs> Hop, stop, do the Michigan popper. <laughs> yes, of course. We're sticking with Chuck Jones, but we're going forward 13 years to 1955 to arguably the most famous one-off character of them all, Michigan J. Frog, and the short subject, One Froggy Evening. Character who was so popular that he, for a while there, he was like the, what was it, the Warner Brother channel, like, mascot. Yeah, until Warner Brother, uh, the WB network, merged with the CW? Or the UPN? Merged with UPN. Yeah. To become yeah, CW. The, yes. Uh, he was the face of the network, and the last thing that people saw when WB Network signed off, just as the merger took place, they showed Michigan J Frog. How fitting. Now, what was I going to I had a thought about him. He didn't show up in any other cartoons. How is that possible? He well, is not in the original run of oh, Warner okay. Brothers cartoons. The studio would close and then they'd, they'd contract things out here and there. Then in 1995, they would do a follow-up called Another Froggy Evening. Was that the one when Marvin finds him? Yes. Yeah. See, I actually don't remember. I don't know if I actually seen that short. I just know of it, I think. Yeah, the same here. I only stumbled upon it in my research today. Because I, I know there's a scene where Marvin and Michigan dance together and sing. But uh, yeah, it's seemingly the, the poor guy in this 
episode doesn't learn that Michigan can only seemly perform for a one person audience, much like Vince McMahon. But (laughs) (laughs) And that's not the only wrestling reference we're going to make during the course of this. Oh, I love we'll get wrestling. to that in a second, though. <laughs> I used to love wrestling. Is probably my more <laughs> my phrase for it. I've a lot of WWE's decisions have burnt me out on wrestling, which is bad because I hear AEW is really good. I just feel so burnt out. <laughs> yeah, I, actually, I also enjoy NXT, but Vince's uh, decisions have affected that too. So, so. One Froggy Evening draws in part from a Cary Grant movie called Once Upon a Time, where apparently Cary's character has a box with a dancing caterpillar in it. Huh. And, allegedly, there was an actual horned toad discovered in a building's time capsule that was built in 1897. Huh. Yeah, what a weird confluence of influences. I'm going to take a large guess and say that that horned toad was not alive anymore when they found it. I hope not. <laughs> uh, that's going to be one angry toad. Also, if it's a horned toad, it's technically not a frog or a toad, but still. True. That's a lizard. Yeah. Who is not friends with frog and toad? <laughs> yeah. So our unnamed construction worker just stumbles upon the box with Michigan amidst the debris of a dis- demolished building. And as Pemmy said, Michigans can sing, but only at this time for the one unnamed man. And he doesn't quite get this. He just sees this frog as a means to get rich quick. All of which inevitably fails when the frog reverts to merely croaking in the presence of anyone else. Now, do you think that the reason or like as a viewer, do you feel less sympathy for the man because he only saw the frog as something he could profit from. No, I feel bad for this guy because he loses everything. (laughs) And even gets taken to a psych ward. Admittedly, there's a point where it goes from this guy's a jerk to, oh my God, he didn't deserve this. Pretty much. Though I want to say that this is such a Chuck Jones show because it has so many of those great Chuck Jones expressions where they're just that kind of half-lit, like, what are you doing kind of facial expressions that I kind of love from him. Yeah, especially from the cop. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Now, a gentleman named William Roberts supplied uh, Maxwell Jacob Friedman's, I mean, Michigan J. Frog singing. And the music was composed by Milt Franklin. An assortment of Tin Pan Alley tunes and other songs popular around the time the cartoons destroyed building was established, 1892, are featured, along with some outliers that are just there because they happen to fit the moment that happened to be animated. Uh, most notably, uh, the last one of the last songs we he- we hear is "Please Don't Talk About Me When I'm Gone," which was written in 1930. Don't. Well, maybe you could hear it from under. From inside the building. True, but but again, you know, it's that's the best explanation I've heard of that. Why <laughs> he knew songs from after the building was built is that he could hear them from inside the the building. I guess it's one of those things where don't let the facts get in the way of a good gag. Mm-hmm. True enough. 
that and it's also like what the 1940s 1950s uh you know it's 1955 1955 it's not exactly as easy to double check your history back then as it is now so good point fact checking has become far easier with the internet but the, this one thing i like about this cartoon because you can still pick up on gags years after you've first seen it like the the name of the building or like the dedication was it the cj wilbur the the cornerstone yeah. And is a reference to an animator or the, uh, the controller for Warner Brothers. Okay. And later the, the building is named after the, the sound effects guy for the cartoons. I, I will say there's one joke in this that I, I will say aged very accurately and very well. <laughs> the free beer? Yeah, the free beer. <laughs> that totally would 100% work now, still. <laughs> Yeah, back in the old uh, Warner Brothers cartoons, there was a fair amount of references to drinking and smoking and things that I don't think would show up in cartoons nowadays. And not unless it's like The Simpsons or Family Guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simpsons for sure, but you don't even see like smoke. Well, no, that's that's wrong. I was about to say in The Simpsons, but Patty and Selma should be long dead from lung cancer. So, uh, yeah. yeah. But to say... One Froggy Evening was memorable with a capital M would be an understatement. It was voted number five of the 50 greatest cartoons of all time by animation veterans and experts in 1994. Nice. It, uh, Jones actually holds four of the five top spots. Obviously, One Froggy Evening. Number one was What's Opera Doc? Number two was Duck Amuck. And number four, Duck Dodgers. I knew the Duck one Dodgers outlier. was one of them. What was that? I said I knew Dick Dodgers was one of them. The one outlier in that top five was the Disney cartoon, The Band Concert. Hey, also music related. Yeah. That, I, I was just going to say, you know, I, I have a a love of all kinds of music. And now that I think about it, old time jazz songs, uh, classical music, a lot of it I first heard watching cartoons whether it was one froggy evening or what's opera doc, you know, rabbit of Seville. Yeah. Uh -huh, rabbit of Seville. Uh, the, the next short we're going to be talking about is, is all music that I was exposed to like older music that I wouldn't have known without cartoons or wouldn't have initially had a positive experience with, without the Warner brothers, Looney tunes, Mary melodies pointing me towards them. Nice. And this cartoon would resurface all over the place, whether being incorporated into Bugs Bunny's third movie, A Thousand and One Rabbit Tales, which I spent many a weekend afternoon watching. Me too. It would, or it would be parodied in places ranging from Spaceballs to World of Warcraft. Oh, the Spaceballs parody of that. I think I remember that more than, like, most of that movie is just the, the alien parody with that. With John Hurt, no less, who was the original victim in Alien. Mm -hmm. Nice. And, and of course, Michigan J. Frog, as you guys mentioned, would be the face of the WB network from open to closure. Now, One Frog Evening did win an Oscar, correct? For Best Animated Short? Did it? 
I'm almost positive that, that it's an Academy Award winner. Steven Spielberg referred to it as the Citizen Kane of cartoons. I'm on the Wikipedia article now, and I'm not seeing it as having received any awards. Let me... I'm surprised. For some reason, I thought it did. I could be completely wrong. One it, it's surprising considering, you know, how popular... Maybe Let's just see. in my head it, it got knocked. <laughs> Well, you you know how it is with these award shows. They always seem to get things what seems right in the moment, but in retrospect, not so much. Yeah, maybe I, I, shoot, I, I supplied a completely wrong reception. Film critic Jay Cox said that this short comes as close uh, as any cartoon. It ever has to perfection, but yeah, I guess it didn't. Why did I think it won an Oscar? I'm terrible. Oh, it, I should hey, be banned was... for over 32 seconds. <laughs> nah, I mean, for it got like we said, it got recognized as number five of the 50 greatest cartoons of all time. So thinking it won an award would be more than understandable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, in 2003, the United States Liber, Library <laughs> Liberty Library of Congress deemed the film culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant and selected it for preservation in the National Film Registry. I'm totally not just reading off of Wikipedia, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to remember that. <laughs> Meanwhile, my favorite Looney Tunes cartoon, Birds Anonymous, uh, still doesn't get a blip. That's a good one. That's a that's a good cartoon. Now, one cartoon I like a lot that doesn't get a lot of attention, in my opinion, was uh, Rabbit Rampage. Oh yes, which was the Bugs Bunny version of Duck Amok, where where it's instead of Bugs giving Daffy a hard time, it's Elmer Fudd is the animator giving Bugs a hard time. <laughs> that one I always thought was really, I, I thought it was really fun, but it, it unfortunately gets. Vastly overshadowed by Duck and Muck for understandable reasons. Yeah, I guess people find Daffy funnier when he's mad. He is, but it it is fun to see Bugs get be it. I I actually like seeing Bugs get annoyed for once. I think it's a nice change of pace. So we've got one last cartoon to discuss, and it's Billy's all time favorite from it the sure Looney Tunes. Au revoir. It sure is. Three little bops. 1957, and this one is from Frizz Freeling. Now, we're, we're cheating a little bit with this one, calling it a one-off, because Warner would use iterations of the Three Little Pigs and the Big Bad Wolf here and there over the years. But I believe these specific designs are exclusive to this cartoon. Yeah, it's definitely like Freeling's more uh, more simplified angular style he uses later in his later in his career at Warner before founding his own studio. One one little detail I, I love about this one, and it's it's something that's common in a lot of the later uh, Freeling stuff, is I just love how like stylized and abstract the backgrounds are. Like those trees are just crazy looking. Kind of reminds me of like backgrounds that Hanna Barbera would eventually start using in their mm. shows. But in other ways, this cartoon's a one off. Not just as far as cartoon characters go, but in terms of soundtrack, in two ways. First of all, the music of Carl Stalling is nowhere to be found, save for the Merrily We Roll Along intro at the beginning. 
In its place is the work of Los Angeles jazz trumpeter Shorty Rogers. And the whole thing is done in 12-bar blues style. And I, it's fine. There was, um, I mean, if you've seen the cartoon, and I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you must be familiar with it or go watch it. There's bands that have covered the song, you know, as part of, you know, like a, a live show. And it, it's fun to watch. I you know yeah. uh, bands that have like horn sections and jazz. It, it's just, it's a good song. And uh, Stan Freeberg does a great job supplying all the voices, the singing voice, the pigs, the the wolf. It 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 tells a great story. I I I, I think this is a perfect cartoon, just about. And if you notice, as the big bad wolf goes from the uh, house of straw to the sticks to the bricks, each time he he becomes a slightly better musician. With, with each uh, trip to the different club until he winds up in, again, because Warner Brothers cartoons can be dark, he winds up in the other place. <laughs> now, I really want to quickly get back to Stan Freeberg because you know, he's done a lot of voices for Warner, including the baby bear of Chuck Jones's iteration of the three bears, which he would reprise all the way up to Looney Tunes back in action in 2003. But this was the lone time Stan would be credited in in the opening because uh, this was during the time when Mel Blanc's contract essentially said, I'm going to be the only person credited for voice acting in these cartoons. Not even Arthur Q. Bryan would get a credit for Elmer Fudd for all those shorts he did. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that wasn't Mel Blanc for years. Because I thought Mel Blanc was the voice of everybody. And it yeah. wasn't until I became like someone who would dive deeper and read about the history of the cartoons where I, I didn't realize that there were other people that did the occasional voice, including, like you said, uh, Arthur Q. Bryan. Or June Foray, I, one of the many voices mm-hmm. of Granny. Yep. Well, mm-hmm. I think she's the, yeah. for the long time, was the only voice of Granny. Because... Hmm. She did that since the original, and she still did it in, like, uh, the Looney Tunes show. Yeah. Now, getting back to Stan Freeberg, though, Frizz went to bat on Stan's behalf with Warner Management, pleading that Mel's clause be overridden just this once because Mel wasn't even in it. Thankfully, Frizz's persistence paid off. Nice. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I really do have to agree with you, Billy, because this is arguably start to finish a great example of cartoon escalation. You know, at first in the house of straw, the pigs are the ones who decide they they don't want the wolf around. Second time house of sticks. It's the audience is perturbed. And that leads Mm -hmm. to the wolf being evacuated house of bricks. The windy tricks aren't working. He's got to go to skies. And this begs the question if the wolf was such a good ukulele player. I thank you. You're absolutely right. Why didn't he play the ukulele instead of the trumpet? Maybe he's just horny. Oh! <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. There. <laughs> yeah, Stan's not the only one addicted to that. 
Nothing but nothing beats a good rim shot. But but like you said, it finally takes an explosive finish and going down to the other place. Mm-hmm. For the big bad wolf to learn the rule, you got to get hot to play real cool. That's right. And even as a little kid who, no, I, I preferred the slapstick cartoons or Bugs or Daffy's or Roadrunners. There was, there's something about this song that I, I just really enjoyed hearing it. You know, I could listen to that whole song from start to finish on repeat. I, I just really, it, it's a brilliantly written little piece of, uh, of music. And who did Stan Freeberg write the lyrics to the song or. Um, well, let me look here. Or Shorty Rogers. I, I, oh, I, uh, I probably read it, but. Well, the story was by Warren Foster. So I imagine he had his hand in it too. Mm-hmm. And again, you get the parodies of, of famous people, like there's the the one pig does the Liberace impression. Yeah, yeah. And you gotta wonder, did kids know who Liberace was, or was well, we that a joke? Explain it real quick. <sighs> Liberace made Paul Lind look like Bruce Willis. Oh, you don't say. <laughs> but it, it, I like the fact that these cartoons can can be aimed at adults even back in the forties and fifties when they were made, because like you said, they were shown at theaters before other movies. So they wanted to hit the grown up crowd and the kids to have something that both could, could laugh at and enjoy. And I think this one actually was as much kid oriented because a 12 bar blues boogie, that wasn't exactly the jazz that Frizz and you know Chuck Jones and Clampett and the others at Warner's would have themselves grown up with. But mm-hmm. to be seeing it portrayed in a different light actually kind of speaks very well to Frizz's acceptance of modern youth culture. He, you know, he wasn't going to be like, oh, back in my day. You know, he would he would portray the pigs as generally likable heroes being infringed upon by this hack. <laughs> I like the use of board. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I was drawn to this cartoon from the time I was a kid, and I, it's not something I would have gotten all the references to. But everyone knows the story of the three little pigs. The one played the, the pipe and the other dance jigs. <laughs> so it's, I, I just this is a cartoon that I've always really enjoyed, right from the beginning. And when, when did um. Oh, uh, the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie was that late seventies, early eighties. That they one include... would have been late seventies, but uh, the one you're thinking of is Frizz Freeling's Looney 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 Bugs Bunny movie. That's the one because I I also had that on VHS. They included the uh, edited version of the cartoon, but wasn't there a short interview segment with the pigs or the wolf? And yeah, the, just right on the red carpet. Yep, to set up the re-showing of the cartoon. And if you look, and there's a new version, there's a sequel to Space Jam coming out soon. In the original Space Jam, the three little bops and the wolf are in the audience of the basketball game. As is Michigan J. Frog and the Dover yeah. Boys. That's right. And nearly everybody else you can think of, except probably mm-hmm. Horton, due to rights issues. 
Yeah. If you weren't playing, you were watching. Yep. Or you were refereeing like Marvin. Yeah. Yeah. If I remember right, the reason Marvin was the... uh, was the referee was because he was like the middle ground between the aliens and uh, Looney Tunes. He wasn't from Earth, and he wasn't. So I, I guess he could be as impartial as as another uh, W uh, Warner Brothers character could be. I guess Looney Tunes character could be. Yep. Now there's a few other cartoons uh, that almost made this episode, like I Love to Singa, which was a Texas. I was going to ask you about that one Did, before you move. I Love to Singa was one that. I always want to like more than when I go back and watch it. And well, this wasn't as good a cartoon as I remember, but I love the fact that the main character's name was Al Jolson. Oh, and it was a parody of the jazz singer. And there's a parody that has outlived the original for mostly good reasons. Uh Uh-huh. That's a, what would Jewish people nowadays find that cartoon offensive? I don't know. I mean, it's it's pretty stereotyped. And and speaking of uh, of of cartoons that might not quite pass muster these days, another one off I almost considered was Gremlins from the Kremlin. Oh, oh. But other than that, th- those were the ones that stood out the most, especially since they they resonated in the larger culture, whether from being sourced from a from a classic children's book or just the characters. Enduring beyond having one appearance. You can't say that for Al Jolson or the Gremlins. No. No, no people remember Michigan J. Frog. They even decades after seeing that cartoon, I mean he became the mascot for a whole TV network. Yeah. So any last thoughts, guys? Oh, I love cartoons. <laughs> um, yeah, Billy, we loved having you on. Yep. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. I hope I haven't wrecked your show too much. Oh, no, no, no. I think Chris came closer, but don't tell him that. <laughs> oh, Chris wouldn't wreck anything. So, uh, I, I think if we uh, come down the uh, Warner Brothers alley again, I think maybe Billy should come back. Absolutely, positively. Also, you or if covered you ever do Wacky Races Part Two, or <laughs> if you ever find that uh, a DVD set of Bailey's Comets. If we do, I, we'll send you the link so you can buy it too. <laughs> oh boy, I've been looking for that one for a while. Yeah, and I'm going to start looking at two now that Pemmy has helped me slay the one uh, great white whale I had, Baggy Pants and the Nitwits. Oh, I used to watch that. I wonder I, does that I, website have. Bailey's comment. I don't think it did. I I got super president, though. (laughs) Well, we'll look into that a little later. Right now, it's just about time to restock the breakfast cereal. So, I'm James Irish. I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. We'll see you all next time on on the podcast. Good night, everyone. You're not going to let our guests sign out? Oh, Oh, I'm Billy. (laughs) I'm Billy. Goodbye. (laughs) And actually, there's only one person I think can end this one. Take it away, Porky. That's all, folks. to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast.
The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.